Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. You've heard the phrase, the devil is in the details, and that may be true, but quite frequently, God is in the details, and I want to relate that to you this morning because... I just got home from a wonderful trip to Israel and uh, was with a great group of about 35 folks. We had our guide, Eli Shukran, the man who discovered the Pool of Siloam and so much else in Israel, particularly around Jerusalem. Uh, Been an archaeologist there for 25 years, excavated most of the city of David. He was our guide for uh, the entire 10 days we were over there. I was kind of the... the teaching person over there, but Ellie was more of the guide showing us where things were and what he discovered. And it was just an amazing trip. And he kept saying, and he was right. He kept saying that you look at the details when you go over there and you see that the biblical stories are confirmed through these details. Now, can you confirm everything in the Bible through archeology? span Of course not. But you can confirm that many stories in the Bible have a strong historical core because you see these details through and through no matter where you go over there. And particularly when you have somebody with you who knows the landscape so well, in fact, excavated much of it himself, particularly in the city of David, uh, and you can just see that what... uh, that, that what went on over there, that what we read in the pages of the Bible actually did happen. I mean, these locations and the discoveries found at these locations add a lot of confirmation or corroboration to the stories we read in the Bible, just the details that we see. And I'm going to take you through the trip a little bit here, and uh, maybe later on we'll get to your questions. Uh, We're live this morning, or if you've been on the trip and you want to call in and mention uh, something you learned on the trip or something that struck you about the trip, you can. It'll be a little little bit later, but our phone number is 888-589-8840, 888-589-8840. If you've ever been to Israel on the trip we just took or a previous trip and you want to call in and relate something you discovered there, that would be great. But let me just give you an overview of what we did over there because it's an amazing place uh, to go to and to see the pages of the Bible come to life. I know it's I know it's a cliche to say that, but when you go over there, you really get a perspective that you really, it's very difficult to get by just reading. But when you can see the locations and you can see the details, how they fit together it really brings the pages of the Bible to life in so many ways. Anyway, what we did is we, uh, you fly to Tel Aviv when you go there, and uh, the first night we spent was in Ashdod. Now, Ashdod may not be a, a, a big biblical location. Uh, if you don't study the Bible, you might not have heard of it, but it is the place where the Philistines were and where they took the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. You know, there was a point in the Old Testament where the uh, the Israelites rushed the Ark of the Covenant out into battle to defeat the Philistines, and uh, it didn't work out too well, and the Philistines actually took the Ark of the Covenant and, um, 
and took it to the town called Ashdod. It's right on the Mediterranean. It's south of Tel Aviv. If you kept keep going south in Ashdod, you're eventually going to hit the Gaza Strip. But we didn't go there. We stayed in Ashdod the first night. And uh, it was not far from there that Samson was born. Uh, it's not far from the Elah Valley, which is where David and Goliath met. I'll get into that here in a minute. Uh, but Ashdod is the place the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, you might know the story in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, they... <laughs> They took the they took the Ark of the Covenant to Ashdod and put it in the in the uh, temple of their god Dagon, and that didn't work too too well out for Dagon because Dagon each night kept falling over, and uh, pretty soon his his limbs were broken off, and then the Philistines were struck with tumors and all sorts of diseases, and they finally returned the Ark of the Covenant after about seven months. They returned it to a place called Beth Shemesh, and w- our first stop after Ashdod with Beth Shemesh. So we, so we drove the first day. Uh, after we spent the night in Ashdod, we drove to Beth Shemesh, and it's near there that Samson was born. Uh, it's not far from the Elah Valley where David defeated Goliath. And uh, so we stood there, right there on this tell. You know what a tell is? A tell is an ancient um, place where one civilization kept being built over another civilization. And so it grew up like a mound because back then, of course, they didn't have bulldozers. If a city got overrun, they, they didn't clear all the debris. They, they, they'd clear as much as they could, but then they'd just build on the previous city. And then once that got destroyed, you know, they, they'd clear some of the debris away, but not all of it. And then they'd build, it, build again on, on top of the previous city. And pretty soon you've got this hill being built up, civilization after civilization. That's called a tell in archaeology. And in order to see what happened in those previous uh, civilizations, you just dig down and you keep digging and you go down into layers. Anyway, we're on the tell of Beth Shemesh, uh, a real place. Uh, near the Sorek Valley, and we talked a lot about the Ark of the Covenant there. And one of the lessons we took away from that was the Ark of the Covenant represented, of course, uh, the presence of God, and that's where they kept the Ten Commandments. It represented the power of God. And uh, you may remember, of course, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is all about the Ark of the Covenant, a fictional story about it, that when the, uh, when the Nazis opened the Ark there at the end of the movie, their faces melted. But where did they get that from? Actually, it's in the scriptures because when the when the Israelites uh, got the ark back from the Philistines who returned it to that town at Beth Shemesh, a bu- bunch of them looked into it and died. Now, I don't know if their face melted, but they died. And so Steven Spielberg and the folks that wrote uh, the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark actually probably read that passage in the Old Testament and said, hey, <laughs> let's let's put this in into the movie. And, and uh, so they did. And you can read all about this in, uh, in uh, the book of First and Second Samuel. You can, you can read about uh, the ark uh, and this entire situation. In fact, I think it's Second Samuel. I have to look it up right now. I don't have it in front of me. But um, the entire story is told right there in the Old Testament. Then you just drive a few miles down the road and you get down to a, uh, the valley where David and Goliath uh, met. And we were in a excavation site that began in uh, 2007. This excavation site is called Kerbet Kaifa. It's spelled oddly, Q-E, there's no U, Q-E-I-Y-A-F-A, Kerbet Kaifa. Uh, 
Uh, and it shows that this city was an urban city established during King David's time, so about 1,000 B.C., and it's probably the biblical city of Sharim, which means two gates. And if you go to 1 Samuel 17, 52, you'll see it referenced here because after David killed Goliath, the Philistines ran away and were slain on the road to Sharim. And that city, Kerbet Keifa, or that site, Kerbet Keifa, is what many archaeologists think is the biblical city of Sharim. In fact, in 2013, the Israeli Antiquities Authority issued a press release that this was the site of a palace of King David. Now, Eli Shukran, our guy, doesn't really think that that was a palace of, of, of King David, but it certainly was an Israelite town. It had two gates. It overlooked the battlefield of David and Goliath. And when they carbon 14 olive pits and the pottery that was found there, they dated it to about 1,000 B.C., and it was only in existence as a town for about 45 years. Then it was abandoned. They found no pork bones there, which means it was probably a Israelite city rather than a Philistine city because a, a tell not far from there did have pork bones, which would have indicated that the Philistines used that. And there also was an uninscribed standing stone found there, a worship site. Now, only the Israelites had worship sites where they'd put up a stone and wouldn't inscribe it. Other uh, civilizations in that area would might put a standing stone up, but they would inscribe it. They'd put their idols on it. The Israelites were unique. They didn't inscribe their stones. And we'll talk about an amazing one discovered by Eli Shukran in uh, the old city of Jerusalem, the city of David, a little bit later in the program. But that was found there as well. So the details work out, friends. You go there and you see all this and you realize there's a great historical core to the Old Testament and also the New Testament. We'll get to that later. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go away. This is a Decency Minute. I'm Bill Johnson. Do you care about protecting your household, your family, your neighborhood? Dumb questions, huh? Of course we care, and we care hugely. Do you know of anyone who doesn't want to protect their household, at least any sane person? I don't. So when a government official or political party argues and votes for opening our borders to anyone without concern for their background, like rapists, murderers, terrorists, we should be very concerned for, make no mistake, there are those who have ill intentions to undermine our country, our constitution, freedoms, including our religious liberty, our lives. Stay alert to the political ploys of the leftists as they verbalize falsehoods, working to dumb us down and to destroy our national sovereignty and supplant our constitution with socialism or even Sharia law. May God wake us up and strengthen our leaders and ourselves. This is a Decency Minute. I'm Bill Johnson. Hey, I'm Tim Timmons. Being free from drug and alcohol addiction is an amazing way to live, and God wants that new life for you. Hi, my name is Tammy. When Emma became a teenager, I just watched her personality change so much, and she did get involved in the drug lifestyle. I had to watch her go to jail. I prayed months and months for my daughter. Then one day, she said she would go to Teen Challenge. She's left her drug use behind, and she has blossomed and become the most beautiful and precious woman of God I've ever known. Coming to Teen Challenge has saved Emma's life. You can live the life you were meant to live, free from addiction and full of hope. If you're a teen or an adult struggling with addiction, there are Teen Challenge Centers all across the country that want to help you break the cycle of addiction once and for all. Call 1-855-END-ADDICTION 
or visit teenchallengeusa.com. You're listening to American Family Radio. with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And uh, today we're talking about a recent trip to Israel. Just got back on Thursday. Amazing trip to the Holy Land. Covered the entire country from south to north, at least distance-wise. Obviously, I didn't visit every site, but we, we went as far south as Elat, which is right on the Red Sea, all the way north to the Golan Heights, up near Caesarea Philippi and the city of Dan, the very northern aspects of Israel. So we covered it north to south quite well. I was just mentioning before the break about Beth Shemesh and Ashdod, two places we, we uh, visited on our very first day there. If you want to read the story of uh, Ashdod and the Ark and the Philistines and the Ark and returning it to uh, the Israelites at Beth Shemesh, just read 1 Samuel 5 and uh, 1 Samuel 6. And uh, actually, it's, it's, it's actually quite funny <laughs> when you read it uh, because you, you realize that what happened there to Ashdod or what happened there to Dagon it says here in 1 Samuel 5, it says, After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it uh, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Uh, then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place, but the following morning they, when they arose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. <laughs> that is why, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. And he goes on to say how the, the, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And they finally just said, we've had enough of this. We're going to return it to the Israelites at Beth Shemesh. And so they did. And then just south of Beth Shemesh, uh, there is the battlefield of David and Goliath and the town Kerbet Kaifa. Kaiafa, depending upon how you pronounce that, and that is the biblical town, it looks like, of uh, Sharim, S-H-A-A-R-A-I-M, from 1 Samuel 17, 52. Uh, and after that, after we were in that area, we, uh, we went down to uh, a place called Ben Gervin. Not a lot. There's a few things that happened in Ben Gervin with, with the Bible, also called Marisha. We actually went to an archaeological dig down there. In fact, one of our, one of our, um, uh, the folks that went with us, a young man by the name of JT uh, from Philadelphia, he actually discovered in this dig that we were, it's an active site we were, we were digging in, active archaeological site, he discovered an ancient uh, little oil lamp that uh, is probably about 2,400 years old. Just uh, an amazing uh, find, and we found of course, quite a bit of pottery and some other things there, but that little oil lamp was uh, was was the find of the uh, of the entire group down there in that area. Um, in fact, the uh, prophet Micah was from the area we were in, so we went down there, which was an amazing site. We also went to the biblical site of Lachish, and Lachish is probably second in importance to Jerusalem in terms of the strategic location. It was fortified uh, about the time of Solomon, right after Solomon. And uh, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invaded uh, Judah and sent his army against Lachish. 
And the city actually fell to Sennacherib from Assyria in 701 BC. We saw the ramp that they used to get into the city. Uh, again, a small detail. There it is. Uh, he actually commemorated his victory, did Sennacherib, uh, with a series of reliefs that he placed on his palace walls in Nineveh. Nineveh, of course, you, you know from the book, the book of Jonah, but that was the capital of uh, Assyria. And these reliefs, by the way, you can see in the British Museum, because when the British excavated the area, they took these reliefs back to the British Museum, and they're reconstructed there. And also, the Taylor Prism, uh, it real uh, illustrates, so it's, it's, it's a prism you can find in the British Museum as well. Inscribed on it is a... A story of the story of Sennacherib after he defeated Lachish, he went to Jerusalem and he and he and he tried to break into Jerusalem where King Hezekiah was, but uh, he couldn't break through the walls. Yet he on the Taylor prism again an archaeological find. It says that Sennacherib had Hezekiah caged like a bird in Jerusalem. Now, if you read the biblical story, what happens is is that while he's surrounding. Hezekiah in Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord comes one night and kills uh, most of his army, 185,000 men. And so he leaves and goes back to Nineveh, where later he's actually killed by one of his sons. Now, again, a small detail, but a detail that you find in archaeology confirms the biblical story that Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem, but he didn't overcome it. He actually never got into the city. Uh, so once again, uh, another detail that we saw when we were at Lachish, and by the way, Lachish, beautiful part of Israel, it overlooked, uh, so many rolling hills in the area that it was just a beautiful sight. In fact, we were there at the perfect time. The perfect time to go to, uh, to Israel, I've discovered is the spring because everything is green. Uh, we had one day of rain. Uh, it, most of the rain had already happened, but we had one day of rain, but it was well worth it. I've gone in previous times in the summer, and it's just way too hot in the summer. But in any event, we were there at a beautiful time, and from Lachish, the the scenery was just beautiful. We also went down on our way down to Elot, which is more of a resort town. We wanted people to recover from the jet lag, so we went down to Elot for a couple of days. But on the way down, we went to Timna. And Timna is a fascinating geological area. It's about 20 miles north of Elat. There's copper mines back down there. There's a, a shrine to the ancient Egyptians, or had a the ancient Egyptians had a worship site there. They have uh, there's some amazing natural sandstone formations down there called Solomon's Pillars, even though they had nothing to do with Solomon. And they have a full scale model of Israel's original tabernacle down there in Timna from Exodus 25 to 27. It describes what the tabernacle should look like. So they had this tabernacle and we went in it. We were actually chased out of there early because we're about to go in the Holy of Holies. The lady that was actually uh, uh, the representative at the site had to leave. So we had to be shooed out of there. But if you, if, if you look at John chapter uh, chapter 1 where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then you jump ahead to verse 14. It says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the Greek, the actual translation could be, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In other words, Jesus was God who tabernacled with us. He lived with us when he came to earth. And so the tabernacle in the Old Testament 
where God's presence was actually became Jesus in the New Testament. He tabernacled among us. And now the temple, the real temple today is, if you're a believer, is in you, is in me, is in all the believers, because the temple is no longer in the desert somewhere. The temple is those who trust in Christ. We're the, we represent God. Now, when you say God lives in you, you don't mean physically because he's not a physical being. You mean relationally, that God is, his Holy Spirit indwells in you relationally. And so now you're a representative and ambassador for him. So we saw that down in Timna. On our way up from a lot, we went to Masada. Everyone has to go to Masada. That's the famous stronghold where the Jews uh, held out the final holdouts for the rebellion against the Romans. Um, they held out in the desert fortress, Herod's desert fortress called Masada. And according to Josephus on April 15th, A.D. 73, the Romans broke into the fortress and found that all the defenders except two women and five children had killed each other. And Josephus said about 960 people took their own lives. That's controversial if that actually happened. Um, but we, we do know that they were held up there. Whether they committed suicide or not is, is, is a question that some people are skeptical of. But it's an amazing fortress up there. They did find... Uh, several scrolls up there with section of Deuteronomy and Ezekiel up in Masada. Uh, you have to go to Masada when you go to Israel. It's just an amazing geological uh, formation and the fort built on top of this geological formation uh, way up in the desert. Just an amazing place. So we went there. Then we went to En Gedi. I don't know if you know where En Gedi is. En Gedi's on the Dead Sea, just north of Masada, maybe 15 minutes north. That's where David hid in a cave after running from Saul. You know, Saul was after him. He brought 3,000 men to try and find David because he was jealous of David. He was thinking David was trying to usurp him. And so he, he held out in a cave there. And in uh, 1 Samuel 24, you can read the story of uh, David hiding there and how Saul went into the cave, and there's caves all over the place. You walk up there, you can see the caves, you can see the oasis, you can see the waterfalls that are falling in the area. And he hid up in caves up there, did David, and Saul went into one of the caves he, he and his men were hiding into, that, I mean, David and his men were hiding into, and uh, David snuck up behind him and cut a piece of his robe off, and after Saul left the cave, David went outside and showed Saul that he could have killed Saul, but he, did, he, did, he didn't want to kill Saul. He, he wanted to respect Saul because Saul was the anointed king of Israel. And so he showed him that, hey, I could have killed you if I wanted to, but I didn't. And then Saul called off the hunt for David. He kind of repented of trying to kill David after that. And uh, David probably wrote two Psalms when he was hiding in, in Gedi. One is Psalm 57 and another is Psalm 142. You can read those Psalms and they're quite cathartic. If you ever feel like you're alone, that people are just um, against you, that everything's going wrong, read Psalms 57 and 142. In fact, one young woman who felt she had been abandoned by her father and then her father was trying to hunt her down to hurt her. Uh, she felt like there's nobody out here who understands my plight. And then she read Psalms one, uh, Psalm 57 and 142, and she realized other people have felt the same way I have.
David certainly did. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine that the leader of your country is trying to hunt you down? You're innocent, but he thinks you're guilty. He wants to hunt you down and kill you. Can you imagine the kind of emotions and psychological stress you would feel if that were happening to you? Well, it happened to David. And so this young woman who kind of felt the same sort of fears read these Psalms and ultimately became a Christian after reading these Psalms and that this has happened to other people before. You may have heard this before that um, most of the Bible is God speaking to us. The Psalms quite frequently are us speaking to God. And so if you're ever in distress, if you're ever stressed out, read the Psalms. They're very cathartic. Uh, after En Gedi, uh, once again, details. <laughs> the details in En Gedi demonstrate that what we read in the Old Testament from 3,000 years ago, these are real places. These are real happenings. After En Gedi, we went to Jericho. I'll tell you about Jericho. And then we went to the Sea of Galilee and finally to Jerusalem. We'll get to it after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Hi, folks. I'm Jim Stanley, General Manager of American Family Radio. And I want to thank you for everything you've done during our three days of share Because of your generosity, we've raised more than $2.2 million. If you wanted to call in during share but for some reason you weren't able to, you can still donate at 877-616-2396 or give online at AFR.net. Because of the blessing of the Lord, we will continue to boldly stand for truth. Thank you. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Hear the conclusion to our study titled Some Strange Ideas, this week on Truth For Life with Alistair Begg. Truth For Life, weekday mornings at 1130 Central on AFR and online at AFR.net. Where can public school teachers go to get answers about the religious rights in school? Welcome to Tips with public school educator, Dr. Bill Ziegler. An expert on religion in our public schools, Finn Larson is with us today in the studios. Finn, where can someone go if they have a question about the religious rights in our schools? Well, Bill, there's so much misunderstanding around that. And Christian Educators Association is one of those organizations that can help clarify what religious freedoms we have. Our public schools cannot inhibit or take away our religious freedoms, and and for that we try to help. I would encourage your listeners today, Bill, they can call our toll-free number and we can specifically deal with their issue and provide for them free resources and materials. We don't need to leave Jesus at the schoolhouse door. For a free guide on your religious freedoms in schools, call 888-798-1124. details yeah sometimes but i found that god is in the details quite a bit in fact going over to israel and doing a tour of the country this was actually my fourth time over there and we toured everywhere from south to northeast to west this past trip just got back on thursday i see that the the details affirm many of the biblical stories. Can't affirm all of them, obviously, but many of them, the ones that uh, we 
the places we went to and what we witnessed there confirmed that there's a strong historical core to what's going on in the New Testament after or in the Old Testament as well. After we went to in Gedi, we went into further north into Jericho, perhaps the oldest city in the world. And Jericho, um, particularly when it comes to the Old Testament, there's a New Testament Jericho and an Old Testament Jericho. The tell at Jericho is quite impressive. We went there and uh, there were three, well, there were two major excavations done there in the past century, one by John Garstang in the 30s and another by Kathleen Kenyon in the 50s. And Garstang found that the city did seem to be destroyed in about 1400 BC, just as the Bible says, that the that Jericho was taken um, over, the, the city walls came tumbling down, that Joshua did this uh, in about... 1406 BC, and Garstang found that. Later along uh, in the 50s, Kathleen Kenyon, another archaeologist, came along and said, no, I don't think that's right. I think the dating is too early. I think that uh, she said that uh, the city was abandoned by 1406 BC, and the destruction happened about 150 years earlier. Well, Bryant Wood looked at research or looked at the discoveries of both Garstang and Kenyon and actually did his PhD in archaeology and his dissertation was on the kind of pottery found in Jericho and he actually found that Kenyon was wrong that Garstang was right and that so much of what we read in the Bible about the story in Joshua chapter 6 actually can be verified by just looking at the archaeological remains. First of all, he found that the date was proper. Uh, the date of Garstang, about 1400 BC, is the right date. Kenyon had it wrong. They found grain in the jars of the remains at Jericho, which the grain was uneaten. And it showed the siege occurred right after the spring harvest. And the, the siege was very short. It was, I mean, seven days is short. In other words, the Bible says they didn't plunder the place. They didn't take the grain or any of that. They just left it there. And that's true. That's what the archaeology finds. Uh, also, uh, the city was set on fire, as the Bible says. The Israelites didn't plunder the grain. They burnt it as an offering to the Lord. You can see the, the, the layer the burn layer right there. We saw it when we were there. Um, and the walls collapsed first and then the fire occurred. Even Kathleen Kenyon admits this. Uh, and there's a section in the north where we went, uh, the north part of the tell. And the tell, I mean, you can walk across it in five minutes. It's not huge. But the north part of the tell, one part of the north wall didn't fall. And we were standing right next to it. Now... It could have been the wall where Rahab was because she let the scarlet cord out of the window there uh, as the Old Testament talks about so the Israelites would know where she was. And um, her, the back of her house, the back of her home was the wall for the back of her house was probably the wall to the city. Now that section didn't fall. And of course, you know, she was rescued and so was her family. So, so much of what you see there in Jericho 
actually confirms what the Bible says. Bryant Wood did his research, I mean, his, his dissertation on this entire topic. Now, by the way, his organization, Associates for Biblical Research, he's, he's part of this organization, Associates for Biblical Research, they have a banquet, uh, and they're having it this uh, coming uh, Monday, not this Monday, the Monday after, right after the day after Easter, April 17th. I happen to be the speaker for their, for their banquet. If you want to attend, uh, check our website out, crossexamine.org, and look at the event. It's in Pennsylvania between Philadelphia and Harrisburg, not far from Lancaster, and if you want to come to this event, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't control who comes, but you may want to check it out. It's the Associates for Biblical Research. They're evangelical archaeologists who excavate in Israel, one of the few to do, if not the only evangelicals to excavate over there. So they're a great organization. Bryant Wood is part of it. And uh, if you want to be a part of that banquet, again, it's April 17th, so about 10 days from now. Jericho, fabulous place. Again, the details all fit. After Jericho, we drove north to Shechem. Where's Shechem? Well, that's Shechem is where so much in the Bible happened, particularly the Old Testament, but also the New. Shechem is where uh, Abraham got his promise from God that he would be the father of a great nation and through him all nations would be blessed. It's right there where Moses commanded the Israelites to gather on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim to recite the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. And uh, Shechem is right between Ebal and Gerizim, those two mountains we were standing on, Gerizim. We went up Gerizim. Uh, if you want to read the story of the blessings and the cursings, go to Deuteronomy 27. And then Joshua, actually, when they get into uh, the promised land, actually follows what, is, what uh, Moses told him to do. And you had some Israelites standing on Mount Ebal and other Israelites standing on Mount Gerizim. And when you go there and you see these two mountains facing one another, you could see how close they are and how these blessings and cursings could be recited and each side of the mountain could hear the other side. That's how close it, it, it is. You can read that in Joshua chapter 8. But also right there, in addition to Abraham getting the promise and the blessings and the cursings of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, you can also go there and see Jacob's well, where Jesus met the woman at the well. And he says, get me some water. Can you, can you get me some water? And he goes on to say, well, uh, the kind of water I have, if you have it, you'll never be thirsty again. And he talks about Mount Gerizim because that's where the Sumerians were worshiping God. And Jesus says to this woman in John chapter 4, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The, women, the woman said, the Samaritan woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus said to her right then and there, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So he claims to be the Messiah right there. And we're up on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, looking down at Jacob's well. Well, it's, there's a church over it right now, but you could see the church. So again, details. Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, the Jacob's well. It's all right there. You go there, you see all this, and you go, 
This is not a fantasy. This is not a myth. This is not a made-up story. They're talking about real places and real happenings. So Jesus claimed to be the Messiah right there in Shechem. After Shechem, we went north to the Sea of Galilee, which is my favorite spot in Jerusalem. What a beautiful, it's really a lake. It's not a sea, but they call it the Sea of Galilee. It's about nine miles by 13 miles, and it's just beautiful, especially this time of year. The green grass is everywhere. Uh, the mountain's green. The, the, the water's beautiful. And, of course, the first place we went was Capernaum, where Jesus, it was pretty much his adopted hometown. He spent a lot of time there. It's kind of in the northern section of the Sea of Galilee, right on the sea there. He taught in the synagogue there. So many miracles were done there. Right next to the synagogue is Peter's house. There's a church built over it now, but we're very sure that it really was Peter's house. Of course, there's scriptural references to the house of Peter. The remains of a church are from the 5th century AD. They're located over the traditional locations of the house of Peter. And the evidence is, is that this really is the correct site. It's a fisherman's house in a fisherman's quarter of the village. The owner of the house was apparently wealthy based on the size of the home. And uh, one a woman wrote in her diary in the 4th century that the house of Peter had been turned into a church. She said, in Capernaum, the house of the prince of the apostles, Peter, has been made into a church with its original wall still standing. There is also a synagogue where the Lord cured a man possessed by the devil. Uh, the way into it is up many stairs, and it is made of dressed stone. Well, you can see the synagogue there from the 4th century. We, we stood in it. And the synagogue of Jesus is built right over the synagogue from the 4th century. You can see the basalt foundation right under it. Uh, so when you go to Capernaum, you're standing right over where Jesus stood. And that's where Jesus not only healed so many people and where they, they cut the, uh, the roof out so they could lower the guy into, the, into Peter's house there and, and he could be healed. This is also the place where Jesus gave his famous bread of life sermon from John chapter 6, which I'll get to here in a minute. Because after Capernaum, uh, well... We went to several, several other places, but the following day we went to Beth Bethsaida. Now, why go to Bethsaida? Because Bethsaida, not far from Capernaum, is the place where Jesus fed the 5,000. And when you go to Bethsaida, it's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's a little ways away from it, a few hundred yards, maybe, maybe a, a half a mile from the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was higher during Jesus' time, so it was actually closer than that. You can see it right there. And... Um, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, here's an interesting thing about the feeding of the five. Well, there's so many interesting things about it. But one thing is, is during the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus turns, before the feeding of the 5,000, he turns to Philip because there's so many people there. There are 5,000 men, which means there were probably at least 10,000 people, if not more. Uh, and uh, he, he turns to Philip and he says, where can we get some food? Where, you know, where can we buy some bread so, so these people may eat? Now, you're probably wondering, why would he turn to Philip? First of all, who is Philip? He's not a major character. Why doesn't he turn to somebody like Peter or John, a leader, rather than Philip? Well, John doesn't tell us why he turns to Philip. Because John doesn't tell us that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is done in Bethsaida. You know who tells us? Luke tells us that the feeding of the 5,000, only Luke tells us it was done in Bethsaida. 
And yet we learn elsewhere in John that Philip is from Bethsaida. This is what we call an undesigned coincidence, where you have two gospel writers giving different details about the same event, and when you put them together, you get your questions answered. John tells us that the feeding of 5,000 occurs uh, and, and, and he asked Philip, Jesus asked Philip where to get the bread. Luke tells us it's in Bethsaida. Well, we, le we learn in John that Philip's from Bethsaida. So when you put the two accounts together, John and Luke, you get a complete picture as to why Jesus is asking Philip for bread because it's Philip's hometown. That's why he's asking him. But we don't learn that until we put the two gospels together. Again, a detail that turns out to be confirmed. All right, I'm Frank Turk. If you want to join the program, 888-589-8840, 888-589-8840. Back in two minutes. One Easter weekend, I had our family act out the story of that first Easter. Our boys played Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, who literally raced to check out the empty tomb that morning. I can still see those two little guys running full tilt to get there first. You know, Peter and John had the right idea. We all ought to run to check out what happened that first Easter. Jesus validated every God claim he'd ever made and proved that he and he alone can guarantee us heaven. Sadly, a lot of people are running away from Jesus. Maybe you. Maybe because you think you're too bad for him or you're so good you don't need Jesus or you're just stubborn about driving a life that he was supposed to drive. Please, turn around. You'll see Jesus standing there with arms wide open and nail prints in his hand because on Good Friday, he died on that cross to pay for your sin so you could be forgiven, so you could be with him forever in heaven. This Easter, run to him. Contact us at 888-NEED-HIM or chataboutjesus.com. He's the love you've been looking for. I feel so hopeless. hopeless. Is there any hope? I, I just feel like there's no hope at all. Is there any hope? Get hope. Get hope. Last month, I came across Psalms 23 in the Bible. That's TWR President Lauren Libby. I was impressed with, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It occurred to me that since Jesus is my shepherd, provider, and protector, I should not want. God is committed to the needs in our lives, not necessarily wants. Debt is taking future resources, emotionally, physically, financially, or spiritual resources to satisfy current wants, creating a gap or a deficit, and thus creating a debt. Since Jesus is my shepherd, the one who provides and protects me, I have the ability not to be enslaved by my wants. Now that gives hope. Need more hope? We have resources waiting for you, including a free devotional. You'll find them at GetHopeRadio.com. That's GetHopeRadio.com. Cross-examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about Israel and the details we discovered over there. I just got back Thursday from an amazing 10-day trip. Great people on the trip with me. And Eli Shukran, the Israeli archaeologist who discovered the Pool of Siloam and so much more in the city of David. He was our guide. And it's just an amazing trip. I'll tell you a little bit more about it here in just a minute. I want to mention that we're about to announce a new online course it's called Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And uh, the announcement is about to begin. You're, the announcement's going to go out in the next day or two. It begins on April 18th. It's an online course. We're only taking 35 people. If you want to be a part of it, keep an eye out for your email. Keep an eye out at crossexamine.org. We'll have a link to it. 
And you can also go to reasonu.com. That website is being constructed as we speak. But if you want to be a part of this course, why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist, it's taught online via video. And there'll be uh, several occasions where I'll be online live with you and you can ask questions. Uh, It's called Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's the first course of many that are coming down the road that you can take online. So you don't need to leave the comfort of your home. Uh, You can take them, and I'll be interacting with you online as well as some of our other instructors. So uh, keep an eye out. The first course, again, begins in about 10 days, April 18th. We're only taking 35 people. If you want to be a part of it, you're going to have to jump on this quickly as soon as the official announcement comes out. But keep an eye out for the announcement at ReasonU.com, also CrossExamined.org. We'll put the announcement, we'll put a link to it up there shortly. So keep an eye out for that, a sharp eye, because you're going to want to be a part of this course, all right? All right, let me go back to our discussion of Israel. I was mentioning Bethsaida, uh, just a beautiful location as well. Uh, Well, here's the interesting part uh, about the relationship between Bethsaida and Capernaum. In John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 in Bethsaida, then he goes to Capernaum. And when he goes to Capernaum, he gives his famous bread of life sermon. Now, do you see the connection here? He just multiplied the loaves in Bethsaida. The next day, he's giving the bread of life sermon in Capernaum. And he says, I am the bread of life. So it fits perfectly with what the New Testament talks about. He's giving his bread of life sermon right after he 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 multiplies the loaves in Bethsaida. It's just all the details fit. And when the details fit, you're getting confirmation that you're reading history. You're not reading mythology. We also went to the town of Magdalena where Mary Magdalene is from. There's a first century a first century synagogue that was just discovered there six, seven years ago. And beautiful mosaics on the floor there. Jesus was in all likelihood there. Uh, we also went on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and that was a worshipful experience. The, the sea around us was just beautiful. Uh, the green mountains around us were stunning. The, the sun had just come out. It rained all day till that point, and it was just a worshipful time. It was just amazing. Uh, The next day, we drove through Cana, where Jesus did his first miracle of turning water into wine at the uh, wedding. Then we went through Nazareth, where Jesus uh, spent his childhood years. Then we went over to Megiddo, 27 layers in Megiddo, which was a very strategic town on an ancient highway that was a fort, but 27 different layers. The, the Bible events occurred there. Jezreel is right near there, another town uh, on the uh, ancient highway. Uh, we eventually made our way to Bethlehem, and uh, Bethlehem, the site there is probably the right site for Jesus' birth, although there's so much commercialization of the site. Uh, but it probably is approximately in the right area where Jesus was born. Uh, in fact, Eli Shukran, our guide, found a scriptural or, or an, an archaeological inscription of Bethlehem, the only one ever found. He found it in the city of David, which is just south of the southern wall of the ancient city. After that, we spent all our the next two days in Jerusalem, 
And uh, there is an amazing discovery found in Jerusalem by Eli Shukran, the man who discovered the Pool of Siloam. We went there where Jesus healed the blind man, chapter 9. Uh, the amazing discovery is an ancient temple under the city of David. And if you go to Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, you'll read that uh, Joseph, um, Jacob, let me, let me get to Genesis chapter 28 because this is, this is too important to paraphrase. When you get to Genesis chapter 28, Jacob uh, uh, awoke from a dream and he set up a standing stone. And he says, he woke up from his sleep. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, he set up this stone and poured olive oil on it. And he did this in the town of Bethel, which is north, I think, of Jerusalem. But we're actually in Jerusalem. Eli Shukran discovered the only standing stone in Jerusalem that has ever been discovered to this point. And this standing stone we saw along with uh, a, an olive press uh, engraved in the bedrock along with what appeared to be grooves in the bedrock for uh, an altar table along with little hooks in the wall that probably were used to hold animals. We were in an ancient temple and Eli Shukran thinks it's the temple of Melchizedek. Because when he found a standing stone there, when he excavated the area in 2010, he found this standing stone that the Israelites use, an uninscribed standing stone, no inscription on it. And right next to it is an olive press. The thought is this was the Holy of Holies for the Temple of Melchizedek, Genesis 14. You can, I don't have time to get into it now. I'm running out of time. I want to get to a phone call or two. Uh, but this place we were in, very few tourists uh, can go into this place because Ellie has the key to it. It's an amazing site, and, and, and I've talked about this in a previous program. We've talked about it on our TV program. We'll talk more about it in a future program. But again, a detail that probably literally is the temple of Melchizedek. The temple before Solomon's temple, obviously before Herod's temple. This temple goes back all the way to the time of Abraham 2,000 years ago. He found pottery in there from that time. Uh, it's down to bedrock. You can't go any lower. I mean, this is an amazing site, and we were there. Uh, again, details. And I don't have time to tell you the rest of the trip. I'm running out of time here. I, I, I want to take a call or two. Uh, let me go to uh, Benjamin in uh, Pennsylvania. Benjamin, we got just a few minutes, but I want to get a call or two. Go ahead, Benjamin. Uh, hey, Dr. Sterk, uh, big fan. Uh, I had a quick question about yeah. your uh, podcast, The Struggle, last week. Yeah. Would the case for Christ be okay for a 10-year-old, and would it hold their interest? Yes, I think it would, and thanks for reminding me of that. I want to mention to people that this is the weekend to go see The Case for Christ. This is it, because The Case for Christ came out last night, and tonight it's, it's, it's in the theaters again, Benjamin, and I think it's good for a 10-year-old. She could, she could deal with it. Um, it's pretty. It's PG. It's for all ages. It's an amazing story of my friend Lee Strobel, an atheist, becoming a Christian by going through the evidence. And if if it does well in the theaters, 
last night, tonight, and tomorrow night, it'll be in so many more theaters the following week, and more people will be reached for Christ. So thanks for reminding me of that, Benjamin. Yes, take your daughter there, and everybody out there, go to see it tonight or tomorrow. It's important. It really is. Uh, it's, a, it's a very well-done movie, and it has great evangelistic potential to it. And I think you ought to take believers and non-believers to this. It's quite a... a, a, a a compelling story to see on the big screen. All right, let me go to uh, Kayam. Kayam, this is Frank Turek. Go right ahead, sir. You're calling all the way from Israel, aren't you? No, no, I'm in the United States lecturing. Oh, uh, you are? I'm okay. I'm an archaeologist of the Antiquities Authority of Israel. Oh, excellent. And I I was the former associate director at the Tzaita, and I'm the current director of the excavation at Kursi, about a quarter of the way around the eastern shore of the Canaris there. Uh-huh. And, and you may or may not have visited Corsi. Uh, you should when you're there. Because yeah, we didn't get uh, there. But Best Side is a beautiful site. Yeah. I was the d- director of the, uh, uh, how you say, in the, uh, the Fisherman's House at the, at the upper, uh, upper part of uh, the, the Roman period part of Bethsaida. Uh-huh. And and so so I'm very familiar with all these things. And I uh, I'm listening to your program. I'm I'm I've been lecturing here at some universities and I I'm sorry to say I was pushing the scan, you know, uh, uh, to find public radio and I found you. Well, thanks. Thought, thanks for stopping. <laughs> Rather than going to NPR, I'm sorry. I got I got about just a minute before we we, we end the program. So so make your point quickly, sir. Oh my goodness. Well, I have no point except to say that uh, as a Jewish belief, uh, I'm Jewish. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and uh, you're exactly correct that what we've done archaeologically. And by the way, I've worked at Lachish also. And and uh, and certainly we are been, being able to confirm so much. However, I would like to just call into question the difference between Kenyon and Garstang's uh, uh, interpretation at, uh-huh. at uh, Yeria, uh, Jericho. Sorry. Right. And and uh, I don't know this associate biblical archaeological thing, uh, but but. Uh, we are fairly certain that the wall was casematic, mm-hmm. which is like you saw in Beersheba and some other places. And and uh, listen, I know you don't have time. Perhaps I can ch- chat with you by email. At yes, your, uh, yes, uh, yes. Please do, Cam. Drop me an email at frank at crossexamined.org, and we'll go further. Frank at crossexamined.org. It's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And I'd love to talk to you more. I'm sorry I'm out of time, but I really appreciate you calling in for the work you've done in Israel. Maybe we can have a further conversation. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Uh, Frank Turek, great being with you, and you got to go to Israel at least once in your life if you're a Christian, so uh, do that. Don't forget to see The Case for Christ tonight or tomorrow as well. I'm Frank Turek. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American... 